the sermon. Speaking of sermons, I've got one for you today. Um, We've been making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, haven't we? We're going to take a little bit of a break next week and in the following week, but we'll get back and we'll finish plagiarizing Jesus uh, this fall for sure. Today we're going to plagiarize Jesus again. We've heard him over the last several weeks, uh, really quite some time now, addressing uh, behaviors, really, attitudes. Uh, He's been contrasting the principles of, of the worldly kingdoms, the kingdoms of this earth, with the principles of the heavenly kingdom that he came to announce. And the contrast that Jesus made has been very, very sharp. I hope you've picked up on that each and every week as he talks about this, that, and the other thing. He's saying, in the world, this looks like this, but in my kingdom, here's what it looks like. It's very different in my kingdom, we've heard him say again and again. And as we've done that a couple of times, I wonder if you've noticed it, a couple of times we've heard Jesus use this word to describe people people that live according to the kingdoms, I'm sorry, according to the principles of the kingdoms of this earth. He's, he's used a word a few times here, and I want to highlight that word today. The word is hypocrite. Jesus has referred several times to hypocrites. Here's how the hypocrites do it. This isn't how we do it in my kingdom, but here's how the hypocrites do it. And I was looking back through these passages, and I think what we've, we've developed here is kind of the portrait of a hypocrite, as Jesus would have it. And so I want to I just take just a, a quick moment in review, give you the image, the portrait of a hypocrite, as Jesus has described him or her. The hypocrite avoids murder, but still has hatred in their heart. The hypocrite avoids adultery, but still lusts. The hypocrite weasels out of promises on verbal technicalities. The hypocrite escalates arguments and adds offense upon offense. The hypocrite divides people into friends and enemies and treats them differently. The hypocrite brags about their good deeds. The hypocrite makes their faith practice to be a performance so that everyone else will notice. The hypocrite usually acts holier than thou. Okay, I don't think Jesus used that term, but it's that idea, right? That the hypocrite acts out the part of being holier than thou. And the hypocrite really cares mostly about money. That's what the hypocrite is in it for. These are the types of people that Jesus is calling out with his message. He's saying, I I see what's going on here. There's an identifier here. These people are being called out with the message that we're hearing Jesus preach. His message is, is one of grace. It's a message of grace for people who are mired in sin, who are eager to discover their way out of sinful entanglement. But his message is much more provocative, much more offensive. The gospel is offensive. Isn't that what the Bible says? His message is offensive to those who are actually using their sin to gain wealth, to gain power, to gain influence. And all the while, they're trying to tell people that their sin isn't really sin. Look elsewhere. I'm living a pure and upright life. These are the hypocrites. And so having given us this this very detailed portrait of the hypocrite, we might expect Jesus' next words to be something along these lines. So when you recognize a hypocrite, call them out publicly, punch them in the stomach, cover them with tar and feathers, and kick their puppy. Really? (laughs) Make sure they've learned their lesson. We might expect that. 
But that, of course, is not at all what Jesus says. Instead, Jesus offers a word of caution for those who believe that they may have discovered some sin in someone else's life. And with that, I'm going to plagiarize Jesus. These are his words. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, oh, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, we've got a little conundrum here, don't we? It seems, it seems that Jesus is saying the very act of calling out a hypocrite might mean that I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> it, this requires some, some further investigation. It reminds me a little bit of the comedian Jeff Foxworthy. Do you remember Foxworthy? He was very popular several years ago. Uh, he was from the southern United States, and he had that routine that made him so popular. You might be a redneck if... And he would go down the list of all the things. You might be a redneck if you're like, he said, my family is full of rednecks. And I've come to find out you might be a redneck if. He said, if your house has wheels on it, but your car does not, you, you, might, you might be a redneck. He said, if you spent more money on your truck than on your education, you might be a redneck. And my personal favorite is, if when the church offering container goes by, you use it to make change, you, you, might, you might be a redneck. Foxworthy is saying you might be a redneck, and, and there's elements of that in what Jesus is saying here. He's saying if you spend your life calling out hypocrites, you, you, you might be a hypocrite. You just might be a hypocrite. Here's specifically what he says in that first verse, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now, it's really, really important to understand what Jesus does and does not mean when he uses the word judge here. Now, on one hand, it certainly seems like Christians are notorious for being judgmental, being too judgmental. More on that later. But it's my experience that too many, too many have used this verse and others like it as license to avoid having difficult conversations with people they love who are involved in obvious sin. And so we say, well, Pastor Smith has been stealing money from the church offering to buy new cars for each of his three mistresses, but who am I to judge? <laughs> you know, that's between him and God. I was never called to be his judge. And I think we agree that's clearly not what Jesus is talking about here. Time and time again throughout his teachings, he instructs his people to be wise and to be discerning about recognizing sin when they see it and addressing it when it threatens to destroy a brother or a sister. So the instructions that we hear here, do not judge, do not judge. That doesn't mean that we're supposed to ignore sin. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to keep our nose out of everybody's business and blinders on our eyes. It doesn't mean any of those things. 
It's, it's not meant to tell us don't point it out or don't confront or don't have the difficult uh, conversation. It means do not condemn. You could almost cross off that word judge and, and use the word condemn. Don't condemn is what he's saying. And, and let me give you an example here. <coughs> Excuse me. Imagine you go into the doctor's office and you've recently had some tests taken and the doctor's looking through his paperwork, reading your test results. When that doctor finds something in your test results that's of grave concern, medically speaking, you do not want a doctor who looks at those numbers and says, well, you know, it's not my place to judge. I'm sure you'll just be just fine. You do you. You do you. You know, this is, this is not my place to judge. You don't want a doctor who does that when they see something that's of obvious concern. But by the same token, you also don't want your doctor to leaf through your test results and go, Wow! I've never seen anything like that. You're going to die for sure. And it's going to be really bad. Oh, man! You don't want a doctor who's going to do that. You want a doctor who looks at the report and says, here's what I see, and it's very concerning to me. But here's how I can help you resolve it. Here's what we're going to do about it. Here's how we're going to address this together. Doctors learn in medical school there's a proper way to deal with a sick patient. There's a proper way to give bad news. And I believe Jesus is saying it works the same way with sin. There's a proper way to address the sins of others. There is a proper way to address the sins of others. And it doesn't mean ignoring the sin, but it also doesn't mean condemning the sinners, condemning someone when we discover their sin. Can I give one other observation? I said it a minute ago, the church has a reputation, I found, of being too judgmental. Well, throughout this passage, Jesus repeatedly refers to the sins of our brothers. And I think it would be fair and safe to add the word sisters there. He's not making a gender statement here. He's talking about our fellowship within the body of Christ. He's talking about the sins that we discover in common believers and people of the kingdom. He's clearly not addressing all of the sin that we might discover in the world. He's talking about brothers and sisters in the kingdom. Christians have earned the reputation of being judgmental. I think the word that's more common in today's world is, is haters, right? You offer up your opinion. Oh, you're a hater. You're a hater. You're a hater. Are you a hater? I, I, I met a hater the other day, right? Christians have the reputation of being judgmental haters, I think at least in part, because in too many Cases we have been quick to judge the sins of the world around us. We've applied the principles of the heavenly kingdom to people who are willfully and openly living according to the principles of this world. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. We are going to find tons of sin in the world around us. Now, Jesus doesn't ask us to ignore it, but what I'm saying here is he typically doesn't ask us to address it, at least certainly not in the same way that he instructs us to address sin that we find in our brothers and sisters. Here's what I really want to say about this. It's not the church's job to legislate the morality of sinners. Let me say that again. 
It's not the church's job to legislate the morality of sinners in the world. Now, I'm certainly not opposed to laws and policies in our society that reflect the ethics of the kingdom of heaven. I'm I'm not opposed to that at all. I'm just saying, I don't think it's very effective to press toward those kinds of things. I don't think we should waste too much time and energy trying to get laws like that passed. That's not how I see Jesus working. And it's not how I see him instructing his followers to work in a sinful world. Sinners sin. That's what they do. Sinners sin. Kingdom people, though, are turning away from their sin. That's what the word repent means. And people who have repented, people who are our brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to help one another through that process of repentance. So there's a proper way to address the sins of others. What is that proper way? What is the proper way of addressing the sins that we discover in a brother or a sister's life? Oddly, Jesus says the beginning of the process has almost nothing to do with the brother or the sister. I'm reading now from verse 14. He says, how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? I imagine that Jesus' listeners laughed when he said that because it's a comical image. I picture Jesus actually picking up a stick and kind of acting it out like, oh, you know, like it's just a funny thought to imagine what's going there. But it's the comedy of it that makes the point so clear. We are too often blind to our own sin. And the result of that is that we are unable to effectively help others. Can I, can I tell you what I want from the people who are supposed to be helping me? I mean, I have expectations for the people whose job it is to help me. I want my personal trainer to not look like me. I want my personal trainer to be in shape. I want my dentist to have a beautiful smile. I want my mechanic to drive a reliable car. I do not want a barber who is bald. I'm sorry. I just have certain expectations. Mike, you're out. It's just not going to (laughs) happen. And with those very understandable desires in mind, Jesus is telling us there's a proper way to address the sins of others, but it begins with an honest evaluation of yourself. It begins with an honest evaluation of yourself. Does this mean that you and I, in order to be good Christians, have to wait to become perfect before we actually get involved in helping other people address their own struggles? Of course not. That's not what this means. But it does mean that confronting a brother about his drinking habit while you're hiding a pornography addiction isn't likely to turn out well for either one of you. It does mean that calling attention to somebody else's foul language while you're harboring hatred and an unforgiving heart is ignoring the real problem with sin. Look at it this way. If I'm drowning in a pool, I don't want the lifeguard to jump in and then I discover that that lifeguard has weights chained to his ankles. I want a lifeguard who can swim. If I'm drowning in a pool, I want a lifeguard who can swim. And the lie that the enemy too often tells us is that my sin is just about me. Have we heard that lie? 
The enemy will tell you that again and again. Your sin is just about you. It's not hurting anyone else. It's just about you. The enemy will tell you that again and again. There's no victim here. But in the kingdom of God, that is never the case. It's never the case. There is no victimless crime. My sin never affects me alone and no one else. It always compromises my ability to be an effective instrument in God's hands. And that means that the people that God sent me to serve aren't getting the help they need. They aren't getting the help they need. And that's why Jesus says, start with the plank in your own eye before you would presume to help somebody else. Take a look at yourself first, Jesus is saying. Get the plank out of your own eye. Why? Oh, I'll bet I know why. So that then when the plank's out of your eye, you'll be able to see just how dirty everybody else's eyes are and they can look to you as the shining example and you'll be able to look back at them with that condescending holier-than-thou gaze and tell them just how disappointing they are. Is that why Jesus wants us to do it that way? Of course not. He tells us why in verse 5. He says, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Then you will see clearly. Once you've removed the plank from your own eye, then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus says that the people of the kingdom want nothing more than to see their brothers and their sisters restored. Here's what I want to say about that. Restoration should always be the goal. Restoration should always be the goal. The Old Testament prophet Micah wrote about how God requires, just always requires three things out of his people. He says he requires his people to act justly. That is to do the right thing. He requires his people to love mercy. And he requires his people to walk in humility with God. Now, I think the first and the third of those three things are pretty easy to understand. If, if, if you're numbered among the people of God, of course God wants you to do the right thing. That makes sense. We don't always do it, but we understand why that happens and how that works. And I think it makes sense to us to act justly. And, and the last of the three things, to walk humbly with God. Well, if God's my God and, and I recognize his presence in my life, of course I'm going to approach that with humility because, you know, he's God. Right? I'm not. So humility seems to make sense in that circumstance. But it's the middle one that I think we most often struggle with, that that, that part of, of loving mercy. Do we love mercy? I mean, I love mercy when I'm the one receiving it. I'm all for it in, the, in those circumstances, right? But when I see mercy in the world, is it our natural inclination to love mercy? Do we stand up and cheer when we see a brother or sister avoid the punishment that they might deserve, change their life, and experience total restoration? Or is there maybe a teeny tiny part of us that wishes they had to do just a little penance so that we would know for sure that they're really sorry? Do we love mercy? In the kingdom of heaven, Restoration should always be our goal. Now, sometimes restoration comes at great cost and it comes with great pain. But other times, 
because of the unique workings of the mercy and the grace of God, restoration comes quickly and easily. And it's not our place, it's not my place to be disappointed if the speck in someone else's eye is removed without complication. I don't love it when that happens. That's exactly what we should hope for. Restoration should always be the goal. And why? Why? Actually, Jesus has already given us the answer to that. And it's, it's at the beginning of what we heard him say today, back in verse two. He said, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This reminds me of what we heard Jesus say. For us, it was several weeks ago in real time. For those on the mountainside that day, it would have been maybe just a few moments ago as he was teaching us how to pray and he gave us the the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? There's that line in the Lord's Prayer that says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now we hear him say, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Forgiveness has a way of replicating itself, doesn't it? That's what we're hearing Jesus say. Much later in Jesus's ministry, Matthew would record that he told a story, one of his famous parables that he would use to teach and to make a point. Parable of the unmerciful servant. It was a story about a man who owed tons and tons, like a lifetime's worth of money to someone else. And when he was called into account, he said, please have mercy on me because there's no way I can pay you this now. Please have mercy. I will will work hard and earn and try and give you everything that I can. And and he was shown mercy. And so he left that place and ran into somebody else who, who owed him a few bucks. And he said, man, I need that money, pay up pay up. And the guy said, oh, I I can't pay you now. And 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 the the first man called the officials and said, take this man and have him arrested, have him thrown into debtor's prison because he owes me money and he can't pay. Now, when the original boss found out about this, he said, I showed you mercy over that great amount of money that, that you owed to me. And you weren't willing to show mercy to somebody else who owed you just a little tiny bit. And in this story that Jesus tells, he says, so the boss had the original man thrown into prison. He had him thrown in and, and, and experienced terrible things. And the last line of that story says this, Jesus says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart, from your heart. It's a pretty scary line, isn't it? It's one of those verses in the gospel that makes us feel a little uh, uh, uncomfortable. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Does this mean that God holds a grudge? No. But it does demonstrate that God wants us to understand that only a truly transformed heart can find a place in his kingdom. Only a truly transformed heart can find a place in the kingdom of God. And moreover, Jesus knows how the universe works. He knows how people respond. He gets it. He understands that people who don't show mercy are unlikely to be shown mercy when they need it. And in the same way, people who act with grace, I think are more likely 
to receive grace when they need it most. All of that to say, restoration should always be your goal because grace is contagious. Aren't we glad that grace is contagious? With the measure we use one to another, so shall we receive, because grace is contagious. With our willingness to forgive one to another, with our willingness to help one another out in moments of weakness and trial and difficulty, so shall we receive, Jesus says, because grace is contagious. The book of Romans tells us where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Grace is contagious. It's growing and flourishing and prospering and sin can't keep up with it. Where sin increased, grace increased even more. If, if you're old enough to have memorized that verse in the old King James, you'll recall where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. You're going to find more grace in the kingdom of God. You're going to find an abundance of grace in the kingdom of God. A couple years ago, they started telling us, oh, because of the pandemic, you can't gather. You shouldn't get in places where there's groups of people. Don't celebrate Christmas with your family, right? They said, don't go to the church gathering. Don't go to the concert or or the play or, or the rally or this place where there's a crowd. Why? Because we're trying to avoid, and what was the term we had that we were given then? Super spreaders. We're trying to avoid super spreaders because the virus is contagious. And and we had it. We had these situations where people came together and they left. And and, and two dozen or 50 or 100 different people were infected. And they say, well, you know, nobody coughed on me. I didn't touch anybody. I I maintained social distance. I did everything. I had no idea that this was going to be a problem. But the doctor said, oh, no, it was more contagious than you thought. And so we have these events. They're super spreaders, super spreaders. Jesus is saying the gathering of my people in my house, the gathering of the church is a super spreader event for grace. It's contagious. You come to church. You say, well, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to go to, I can read the Bible on my own. I can, I can sing a song of praise. I can listen to a sermon online. I can study. I can do all of these things. And Jesus says, no, you're missing out on one of the most important things. You're missing out on the super spreader. You come into the house of God and you say, I don't, you know, I'm just here to go to church today. And you don't even realize, you don't even realize that grace is being dispensed over here. Grace is being dispensed over here. Grace is being dispensed over here. And pretty soon you're infected. You're infected with the grace of God because grace is contagious. And I believe that's an important part of what Jesus wants us to know. Grace is contagious. It's catching. It's catching. It's catching. You came today and you walked in. Maybe you grabbed the outline on your way in and you took a look at the reference and you saw some of the the bullet points and you thought, oh, great. (laughs) A sermon about judgment. Just what I need. Just what I need. I just needed to hear a little bit more about judgment. And if you couldn't tell, that was sarcasm there. You came today thinking you were going to hear a sermon about judgment. My prayer is you heard a sermon about grace. 
My prayer is that you receive grace today. And I want you to think about that. I want you to think about where you might fit into this picture. Recognize that in the image that Jesus gives us, none of us is walking around with clear eyes. This one's got a speck. That one's got a plank. Nobody's here in a position to be holier than thou. Because none of us is holier than him. But what we can do, what we should do, is to be in a position where we're ready to help one another out. To be in a position where we're not afraid to address sin. Sin is real talk, folks. We need to talk about it. What we can do is be in a position where we're not afraid to talk about sin, but we're prepared to do it the right way. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, there's a right way to do it. Now, outside my kingdom, you're going to interact with the world. That's a whole other series of sermons for a whole other day. But right here on the mountainside, Jesus says, what are we talking about? We're talking about my kingdom. And so if you see a brother struggling, here's how I want you to deal with it. If you see a sister struggling, here's how I want you to deal with it. When you recognize, when you recognize that you yourself are struggling, deal with it. Here's how I'm equipping you to deal with it. Because grace is contagious. And I believe the word of the Lord today says, that's why I've called you together. Because grace is contagious. So I want you to think about those things today. And I, I wonder if, as I said, you can find yourself in the story. Maybe there are those who would say, you know, I have been running from God because I was afraid of judgment. I was afraid of the God in my mind's eye who throws lightning bolts. I was afraid of the God uh, that I had come to understand in my childhood or in another experience, the God that I had been told about, the God of movies, the God of this, the God of whatever, wherever that false image is. Do you understand? The false image of God. This is how he just wants to fry me. And so I've been staying away. But today, I need grace. Today, I need grace. I wonder if likewise there are those who would say, I have been running from the church. I'm like, let's not even talk about God. <laughs> let's just talk about his people. Let's talk about those Christians for a minute. I have been running from the church because I didn't want to hear their judgment. But today, I want to receive grace. Today, I want to receive grace. I'm reminded, have you ever seen these videos? Come across them on YouTube sometimes. There's, there's a million different versions of this, but you know, the dog that's got a thorn in its paw, or the deer whose, whose antlers are stuck in the fence, or you know, this animal, or that, you know, the, 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 um, the owl that's tangled up in, in something. And, and the person, you know, sees it and wants to rescue it, wants to help it, and they, they come. And, and that animal is going nuts, right? Like, get away from me. That animal is doing what animals do. They're conditioned. Like, don't trust the people. 
Don't trust the people. Aren't we conditioned the same way? Don't trust the people. I'm wounded. I'm hurt. And they're coming in so they can finish me off. You can picture the deer stuck in the fence or the owl stuck in the lines or, or the dog you know, with the wounded paw. But you've seen the same videos I have, haven't you? Maybe you've even experienced it yourself. Let me just help you out. Let me take the thorn out of your paw. Let me untangle the fence from around your antlers. Let me get that wire off of your wing. Just, just please trust me. Just please be careful. I know you think you're about to experience condemnation, but you're going to experience grace. I believe there's people in this room today who are stuck in that fence. I believe there's people in this room today who are twisted and tangled. And, and your reaction, your, just, your visceral reaction is get me out of here. Because the last thing I need is judgment and condemnation. Would you bow your heads for a moment? Hannah, come give us some music. Lord, at the beginning of this service, we breathed in. We breathed in. We received. At the end of the service, once more, we receive. But we are here not to receive judgment and condemnation. We are here to receive grace. Church, with heads still bowed, I'm going to ask a couple of questions here. The first question that I'm going to ask, and I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to ask you for a response. With heads still bowed, would you just put a hand up if you can say, I can remember the time in my life when I was like that deer with my antlers stuck in the fence. I was like that owl with the the wire covering my wing. I was like that dog with a thorn in my paw. I remember that moment when I thought I was going to get judgment and condemnation, but instead I experienced the overwhelming, liberating, freeing grace of God. And I have never been the same. If you remember that moment in your life, would you just put your hand up? there for just a moment. Keep it there for just a moment. Church, I want to say this to you right now because I'm looking and you aren't. There are hands up all over this room. As well there should be, right? Because that's what this place is. This is a gathering of the the people who have experienced the grace of God. There are hands up all over this room. You can put your hands down now for a moment. But I just want to tell you what I just saw. As I looked out across this room and hands raised, I saw saw leaders in this church. I saw deacons in this church. I saw teachers in this church. I saw people whose spiritual life I look up to in this church. I saw people who have poured into me in this church. I saw all kinds of people with their hands raised saying, yeah, I remember what it was like. I remember what it was like. I also saw folks who only recently have come to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ say, man, I remember it like it was yesterday because it just about was yesterday. I was stuck. 
I was caught. And I thought for sure the only thing I would ever get from God or from his people was condemnation. But the gospel says I got grace. And I got mercy. I'm going to ask one other question. Who's ready for today to be that day? who in this room would put a hand up and say, you know what? I'm tired of running. I'm tired of struggling. I'm tired of being afraid of God. I'm tired of being afraid of God. I'm tired of being afraid of His people. I want to I be affected with grace. I see a hand. I see another hand. another hand. I see another hand. God, you see all the hands. Church, you can put them down if you want right now. The Holy Spirit sees and hears what's going on in your life right now. He is as good as his word. He is as good as his word. Today is the day when you stop being afraid of what God is going to do. Today is the day when you stop worrying about what Christians are going to say. Look, we're not perfect. And we're going to need to apologize to you because we're going to make mistakes along the way. You're going to take the sawdust out of your eye. You're going to help us clear out our eyes. We're going to work together on this thing. But we are not going to hurt each other. Amen? We are not going to pull each other down. Amen? We are not going to condemn. Because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords sat us down on the mountainside and he said, don't play that way. That's not how we do it in the kingdom. Don't play that so, Lord, we're not going to. We're going to receive the grace and the mercy that you have for us today. On your way in this morning, you grabbed a communion cup. And I'd like you to take it right now. Perhaps you have, perhaps you haven't received communion before. Perhaps you've done it, but never with heart or the attitude or the understanding that you have right in this moment. This meal that we are about to receive together is a special meal. This is a powerful meal. Can I say something ridiculous? You're like, yes, better than anyone I know. <laughs> this bread, take the bread I want to apologize in advance for what I'm about to say, especially to the German folks in the room, okay? There's grace for each and every one of us. Can you imagine the baker that made this bread? What, what if he hadn't washed his hands? Oh, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, right? What if he didn't know that he had a little, a little cold coming up? You know, what if he didn't know? What if this bread was let me tell you what I do know. The one who gave us this bread in 
invited you to a super spreader event. He invited you to a super spreader event. He said, there's a little virus I bring big in here. Oh, you're really struggling now, aren't you? <laughs> there's a little virus I bring big in here, and it's called grace. It's called grace. Oh, it's contagious. Oh, it's contagious. When you receive this, you receive the grace that I have thinking I was going to serve a big old steaming pot of condemnation. But guess what? All the chef has is grace. All the chef has is forgiveness. All the chef has is mercy and love. And he says, will you take it? Will you receive it? And will you do it again and again and again and know what I have given you? Let's receive the bread of God. of course of the communion meal are in remembrance of me right most of us know the story well Jesus last supper his followers the bread the cup in remembrance of me in remembrance of me how could we remember Jesus and fail to remember his grace how could we remember Jesus and fail to remember his mercy and his love and his forgiveness how could we remember Jesus without remembering that we came into his presence and our burdens were cast away. They didn't kill us. They didn't entangle us. They didn't finish us. They were cast away. In remembrance of me, he says, let's receive the cup together.
instead we found grace, we found love, we found mercy, we found empowerment, we found a God who said, here is my spirit, breathe in here's the breath of life, go forward and live. For some of us, that day was many, many years ago. For some of us, that day is today. But Lord, breathing is not something that we do just once and are done with it. No, we need to do it again and again and again and again. So help us to breathe deeply of your grace. Help us to breathe deeply of your mercy. Help us to breathe deeply of your love. Help us to exhale, Lord, words of praise and thanksgiving for the transformation that we receive in your powerful hand. Help us to know, Lord, that what you have accomplished is certain. We celebrate and rejoice in your good work today. In the name of Jesus, we all say, Amen. Amen. If God did a work in your life today, share it with somebody. Celebrate with somebody. Have a great week. Pray for your church family, and we'll gather together next week to celebrate.